One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the show that builds biographical bridges between our guests and you, our listeners, with the help of just three songs that have become bound to their lives and their memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Robert Margaleff. Robert is a Grammy Award-winning record producer and sound engineer and electronic music pioneer who might be best known for his work with Stevie Wonder in the early 70s on a string of award-winning albums like Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, and Fulfillingness's First Finale. Over the decades, Robert has spent time in the studio producing and engineering for the likes of Quincy Jones, Stephen Stills, Jeff Beck, Weather Report, the Doobie Brothers, Joan Baez, Depeche Mode, Oingo Boingo, Devo, and plenty more. The list goes on and on. He was a colleague and friend of synthesizer inventor Robert Moog and was also an early creative resource for Andy Warhol's Factory and co-producer of the cult classic film Chow Manhattan in 1972. He bought a Moog Series 3C in 1968 and around that time became friends with renowned bassist Malcolm Cecil and they set out to build the world's largest synthesizer and jointly formed a group known as Tonto's Expanding Headband and it was their first album called Zero Time in 1971 that got young Stevie Wonder's attention, and it was their newly developing analog synth sound that gave his albums around that time much of their magic. In 1980, Margaleff produced Devo's Freedom of Choice album, which included Whip It. He stopped by our studio while in town to give a talk called Devo's Freedom of Choice at the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery at Florida Southwestern State College. Hey there, Robert. How are you? I am just wonderful, enjoying southern Florida. I've not been here before. I, I was to Florida once about 30 years ago, and I got bitten to death by the mosquitoes, and I had to leave and, and never came back. So not only have you not been to southwest Florida, but you've only been to Florida once. Yeah. Huh. And here it's beautiful today, really nice. A little, um, little humid, but boy. It is a little humid. We had all that rain yesterday. Um, uh, in reading up on you, I found a bunch of pictures of you back in the day, and you had some great hair. You had a great <laughs> big head of hair. Yep. <laughs> was that a, like a, a, a style choice, or was that just how your hair grew and you didn't pay attention to it? I, my hair was always – I've always worn my hair very long. You have to understand that I was uh, – uh, coming out of the beat, I existed coming out of the beat generation into the hippie generation. I was sort of at the uh, borderline of the two. Hmm. So I've always had long hair. Hmm. Still do. Yeah. Um, so where did you grow up and how would you describe the musical background of your childhood? Well, I uh, grew up in a little town called Great Neck, New York, mm -hmm. a bedroom community about 16 miles outside the city. My parents were a typical sort of middle-class Jewish family. I had an older brother and an older sister. And uh, music uh, was always a part of my life. My older brother, although he became a medical doctor, played stride piano and worked his way through medical school in Europe playing in uh, bars and, uh, you know, was a working musician. And my sister was uh, graduated with a master's in keyboard from Juilliard. Huh. So we had a beautiful Steinway in the house, and uh, 
I grew up listening to Bach, Brahms, and Beethoven more than uh, more than pop music, and uh, I uh, studied classical music as a kid with a piano teacher, and then ended up uh, going away to prep school in Massachusetts, and ended up. I was attending a place called the Stockbridge School, which is a very forwardly thinking place. Now, I graduated from high school in 1957. Okay. So it was not a very progressive time in the culture, but this school was highly progressive and uh, was down the road from Tanglewood. And once I discovered Tanglewood, they had a summer program with uh, the Boston Symphony Orchestra and a big shed in the outdoors, and it was all classical music. And they ended up studying there that for a summer and worked uh, under the baton of people like uh, Charles Munch, Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, people like that, and really learned more about classical music. So I've been very steeped in classic music, classical music all my life, when more you, than pop music. Was there any pop music that you were you know, attracted to when you were younger, or, or was that even something you considered? I really was more interested in, uh, you know, Brahms and uh, Bach, well-tempered clavier. I grew up listening to keyboard music, to piano, and I'm still extremely partial to keyboard music. I, you know, studied music. I went to Manhattan School of Music. I did all those things, and uh, I really never, I realized that I was never going to be another Enrico Caruso or another Pavarotti. I was studying voice, basically, and uh, singing in the choir at Tanglewood to start out with. But um, uh, I never, I never really thought of myself as being having the potential of being a great singer or a great keyboard player. I was competent, but not competent, you know, like Shostakovich or. Or your sister, I or guess. Or my sister, right. <laughs> I never really found my instrument. I didn't know where I – I felt the musicality, but I didn't really understand what I was supposed to be doing. I tried going to Manhattan School of Music, studying opera. I wanted to be – and I figured I'm not going to be that guy standing out in the front on the stage with 5,000 or 4,000 people before me singing. singing. I, don't, I just didn't have the instrument for it. When I discovered the synthesizer, which I did in the early days when I was living in the East Village in New York, I'd settled there. Uh, as a matter of fact, right around the corner from the uh, from uh, Bill Graham's uh, Fillmore East, and I started really listening to a lot of pop music then. But until I discovered the synthesizer, I didn't have a voice musically. I felt the music inside, but I could never feel... Uh, I knew I would never be a great player in the classical sense. And when I heard the synthesizer, I said, I have to have that instrument. And that's how I found my voice in music, really, in doing something and playing electronic music, which is where I ended up. And uh, that's what brought uh, Stevie Wonder to, to me and to my partner, Malcolm, who's now R.I.P., sadly. But... um once I found the synthesizer, I found my voice. Did you, during that time between realizing that you weren't going to be an opera singer or a leading pianist, were you still aspiring in your heart to do something with music or creating? Yes, yes that's exactly right. 
but I didn't know what it, what I was supposed to be playing. And I also started, I really found the synthesizers through my career as a filmmaker. I uh, ended up producing a film which is some sort of uh, reputation now called Chow Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It was the story of Edie Sedgwick, basically, and she, Edie was on the Life magazine, cover of Life magazine, and she was Andy Warhol's darling at the factory, and Andy was busy making movies. And I wanted to make a movie, too, and I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And all of a sudden, I was uh, sort of hijacked by a whole bunch of the people from the factory, from Andy's place, because he didn't pay anybody. He just went there, and whatever fell out of the camera, that's what it was. But I had the idea of I, I met a whole bunch of people from the factory. I was totally fascinated with it and the whole underground milieu of that, which sort of uh, centered around a few of the watering holes in New York, one especially called Max's Kansas City. And Andy had a, a table in the corner, and I had a table diagonally opposite his. We used to populate it quite regularly like that, and it was uh, it really was a scene, um, both the good points and the bad points. But uh, when I started making the movie, and I heard for the first time, I went to a club, I think it was called... Uh, 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 I don't remember the name of it, but... Uh, there was a synthesizer just kind of blooping and bleeping away a few modules laying on the floor in the sound booth. Uh, and uh, I heard it and I said, wow, this is the way to score my movie. Huh. We can do it all ourselves. I don't need a bunch of guys with pencil protectors and white shirts and stuff, a bunch of scientists running around making music. I could actually put this instrument in the hands of players and myself and actually score my movie. And what I was trying to do was to make the world's first above-ground, underground movie huh. by taking the, a lot of the good things that, like Andy was sort of at the head of and sort of the psychedelic movement inside of motion pictures, and uh, to refine it and to give it some adult toys instead of newsreel cameras, old-fashioned newsreel cameras, which is what Andy was using. And uh, I put it in the hands of the, all these creative people, and so we started making a film called Chow Manhattan, starring Edie Sedgwick. And that's really sort of which led me to playing the synthesizer, that led me to uh, making my first album after a couple of years with my partner Malcolm Cecil uh, called Zero Time, which is on Embryo Records. And uh, one night, I, we, there's a knock on the door. I think it was a uh, Memorial Day weekend. It was very hot. The windows were open. We were in Malcolm's apartment next door to the studio. He was the chief engineer. So they, when you have a lot of analog equipment, the minute you turn it on, it starts breaking. So they always had to have a maintenance staff available 24-7. So all the windows were open, and uh, we hear someone call up from the street, Hey, Malcolm. Right, And we look down, and there's our friend Ronnie Blanco standing there on the sidewalk in front of the studio door, which was locked because it was holiday. And uh, Stevie was standing there next to him with <laughs> our, our album under his arm. 
and the next five years was a fever dream. I don't know exactly what happened, but I know we made a lot of music. We'll get to that. That's a peek into the future. We'll get to that a bit down the road. But let me ask one more question before you do your first song. When you discovered the synthesizer, were you a technically minded person so you understood the electronics of it? Or did you just understand the surface of it and the capabilities that you could see? Well, I think it's a little of both. Uh, I was pretty good at recording engineer, but not the quality of engineer that my partner at that point, Malcolm, was. Who is he was the chief uh, technician for you know a six room st- studio complex. He was highly uh, highly trained in electronics and music. Um, as a matter of fact, he played at Ronnie Scott's in London which is sort of a major jazz club, and everybody who was anybody played there. And Malcolm was the part of the rhythm section of the band. So like if Herbie Mann came to play, he, all he had to do was bring his flute, right. and there was a rhythm section at the club. Huh. But uh, he, uh, we, uh, I really was not the kind of engineer that he was, technically, but... Um, he looked at me, and my synthesizer was in the control room. I walked into Studio A, and the console was open. It was an old-fashioned. Everyone made their own consoles in that day. You weren't like an SSL or an Eve, you know, sort of a brand that you'd put in the room. Everybody was making their own boards. and Yeah, it was like, it was like out of Radio Shack, as it would be thought of yeah, later. It was, a, <laughs> it was a nest of wires under there. Yeah. I, it was uh, – and the console, that console in Studio A sort of bent, was bent in the middle because it was one big sheet of uh, aluminum and everything was attached to it. And it was very heavy in the middle. When you <laughs> lift it up, it would like be bent in the middle. And uh, so I met Malcolm for the first time. I came in. It was in the winter. It was in the, that, that – uh, before meeting Stevie, I went in there. I was uh, – Working at Media Sound as their electronica bad boy and electronic music specialist and doing commercials and stuff. And at that point, Malcolm started asking me about the synthesizer. And I said, I'll tell you what. If you teach me really to be a really fastidious recording engineer, I'll teach you in exchange how to play the synthesizer. Because at that, I was quite expert at it. So we changed roles over the period of five years. I ended up being a great recording engineer, and he ended up with the synthesizer. <laughs> and Stevie was kind of in the middle of that. So um, uh, Tonto is both the name of part of the name of the band, but also the name of your world's largest synthesizer. Can you just describe that, and then yeah, we'll move on ta- to your first song? Yeah, Tonto, the original Neo Timbral Orchestra, T O N T O, and what it was is a major conglomeration of many components for many different manufacturers, which we were able to unify because Malcolm came up with a way of developing a control voltage that all these different uh, modules could talk talk to one another. And that wasn't common in those days. Mm-hmm. Now, when we have modules from everybody, we call it the Eurorack, which I was mm-hmm. uh, talking about today, as a matter of fact. Tonto was the original Euro rack, and uh, it was all analog. But we had to use we used it in such a way where it was designed so that we could perform live. That was the 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 sort of the nub of why we wanted to do that. And it was huge. Yes, you know, for the listeners trying to picture it, I mean, it was 
And you had 25 it a, feet across. 25 feet across, but you had it eventually arranged in a sort of semicircular fashion. Right. It was also – it was concave and circular. And like tall uh, – way tall. taller than a human. Yeah, so. yeah, but it was all measured to our reach of our hands. Yeah, you had so to be able to plug the thing in or yeah. unplug the thing or twist the thing. But the beautiful <laughs> thing of being inside it like that, it was one of the only instruments you occupied when you played it. Yeah, but if 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 we had it when we were first putting it together in the Rube Goldberg fashion, it was twelve and a half feet long. And uh, <laughs> how do you reach all the knobs and do things? So uh, it was. Uh, we decided to try to put it inside a sphere so that Malcolm and I could face each other on the keyboards, and we would be able to reach all the controls easily. And when that was very handy when we were working with Stevie. Of course. But it was the original, what now we call the Eurorack, where many, many different modules from different manufacturers with different design philosophies that are able to uh, interact with one another because they share a common power supply and control surfaces. So uh, we started that. It was the, Tonto was that. Tonto, incidentally, is in Calgary, Canada now. It's been totally restored and it lives uh, – at the National Music Museum in Calgary, and they have a studio there called Studio Bell. And uh, I'm going to be going up there in a few weeks with my friend Anthony Marinelli, who is also a real maven in synthesizers, and we're going to record and do some work on it because the museum has totally restored the instrument. That must be like – you must just be licking – you know, I mean that's just – that must just be full circle. It is in a way, and uh, I'm only sad that Malcolm passed away two yeah. years ago, but Anthony is also a great player and programmer, and uh, I haven't stopped, although it's been kind of uh, meager. I just did this last six months. I just did a session with Stevie again after like 25 years wow. or something. So I read up on you, but I missed that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do your first song. This is one of the Tano songs. Yeah, which one is it? Um, it's the Cybernaut. Do you want to yeah. like tell a little bit more of a story? Do you want to go ahead and listen to it? What do you uh, want to do? Let's uh, let let's let the song speak for itself, and then I'll tell you how we how it worked and what we did. I love it. This is Robert Margolef's first song today on Three Song Stories. This is Cybernaut by Tonto's expanding headband from their 1971 album Zero Time. What do you remember or think about when you listen to that? Is it playing? Is it producing? Is it inventing? Like, like you were, you're in that song. I mean, what do you, what goes through one's head when you listen to that song now? Well, first of all, uh, it's not really classical music, nor is it pop music. No, it sort of lives in its own space. Sure. And the important thing to understand is, for the most part, with with just a few very minor overdubs, that was live, Hmm. okay? It's all of the instruments you hear there are all electronic. There's no acoustic recording there at all. That entire song is in the ether and magnetic magnetic particles on a moving piece of tape. There was no, it's not overdubbed very much. There's some overdubs, but very minor ones. It's performed live all the instrument was set up so Malcolm and I could play simultaneously and there was we had like we developed the concept of a tuning bus so we could make the entire instrument all 12 voices of it modulate 
together. So gotcha. if, if Malcolm was playing a bass line, for example, and doing the modulation, and he changed keys, uh, I was playing the, the other it would, keyboard. It would, it would trigger yours to do it, the same. It would transpose it. So as long as I played wow. everything on the white notes, for example. Yeah, you could just play it, in C and B all know, over the place. Right. <laughs> and I would transpose everything. So Tonto had a mind of its own, I guess. And it was also highly unstable and very fleeting. We, Malcolm, we got together. We got a military spec power supply to drive it. And uh, uh, so we, because st stabilization was an issue and also RF radio stations would cause it to modulate. So we had to be very, very careful. When we built the final synthesizer, we actually put a, a, cop a system of, of copper tubing in the back, which we used to hang our wiring off of, but it also acted as a Faraday cage yeah, yeah, yeah. to screen out RF. But uh, our goal was to be able to perform live. Now, this is 1970, uh, 1970, 71, around six, no, 60, 67 or 68, actually, when we were actually building the instrument. So it was a huge conglomeration until we were able to put it in that, in that case. And that case gave us the opportunity to really create an instrument, one instrument played by many people at the same time. That's why it's called Tonto's Expanding hmm. Headband because we wanted other players to be able to share and to add to the to the songs. We'd all often send the 24-track tape, master tape out with stuff on it to somebody else. Now, of course, we do it all remotely. Sure. But we were doing it mechanically by saying, you know, Ned, here's the tape. You have uh, four tracks. Do something. Be, be creative. We've done that several times, but... The song itself uh, is really sort of inspired by uh, Egyptian pharaohic legends. Uh, like this is sort of a, a journey to the to the, you know the boat when the, when the pharaoh passes on, he goes into a boat and s sails toward the western horizon. Right? It was music for that image. Wow, I could see it. Yeah, and I I think it's its own kind of music. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it has eight. You know, some certain certainly. You know, has bar lengths, eight bar phrases. But other than that, even we would even experiment with the tuning so that we could sp stretch an octave out, one octave over two octaves on a keyboard, so we could play the notes in between the notes. Interesting. Wow, you gave yourself twice as many notes. Yes. Huh. But uh, more semitones. But yeah, it, yeah. Just to see. Yeah. To see how. Uh, how we could do that. It was that instrument. Um, I think the people that owned the studio really knew that what Malcolm and I were doing was truly groundbreaking. And slowly we started developing a very huge uh, cast of characters who wanted to come in and use and work with us. And it was, it was a honeypot, you might say, to them. Do you remember so, a moment where you looked at him and were like, holy cow, we like, this yeah. is something. <laughs> yeah. That came, uh, strangely enough, uh, when we were working on our album, we didn't have a record deal or anything. You know, we were just doing this. Malcolm was taking care of the studio and I was taking care of clients like Crazy Daisy Toilet Paper and Ford Torino and uh, Duracell batteries. Making, In other words, jingles for advertising. Yeah, jingles for advertising. And uh, at night, we would have the studio to ourselves, and slowly we started developing 
people coming to work with us. Like uh, one client in particular, Richie Havens, I ended up producing a couple records for his uh, wow. label. And but the synthesizer really took it on a life of its own. And uh, uh, what we were really doing was to be all instruments and not necessarily. The synthesizer is not synthesizing the sounds of real instruments. Right. It's the synthesizing of sounds from vibrating electrons, and those sounds could be anything. But the thing is that we're also highly unstable. When you got the sound you wanted, you had to use it right away or it would go away. Interesting. So it was a very uh, sensitive, sensitive to touch, sensitive to uh, temperature, and so forth. The so the thing that I think was the most meaningful one was a song called Aurora, which is one of the first songs we worked on, which has its spread tones. They're not totally uh, a 12-note tone row. And very, very spatial sound. And huh. We were working at Media Sound. We had the synthesizer in Studio A, which was an old church. And it had stained glass windows and a peaked uh a peaked roof. It was, the people loved it because it had such a great sound, the room itself. And we had the synthesizer out there, and Malcolm and I were fooling around one night, and uh, in walks Herbie Mann, who is a flautist of some renowned jazz player. And he said, Malcolm, what are you doing here? Because he, he, Herbie was playing at Ronnie Scott's, the jazz club in, in London, and uh, Herbie came in for some sessions. He met Malcolm, who was playing upright bass, string bass. He says, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm working, me and Robert are working on uh, our electronics music. And he says, you doing something like that, the purest that you were? And Malcolm says, don't, Herbie, don't knock it until you hear it. Hmm. And he went downstairs to Studio B for a while, and he came up. I pulled the synthesizer out. It was on a gurney at that point. It was flat, flat surface. I put it under a spotlight in that church, and we had a spotlight on it, and the whole church was dark and very reverberant, big speakers. And we played Aurora for him, and it sounded like the end of the world. Huh. And he says, you guys want a record deal? I said, really? He said, yeah. And he put out our, excuse me, he put out our album Zero Time. And the, he, he said, I, Malcolm said, you see, we're doing something that's very, very different. Hurry, heard it. We got a $5,000 advance which is a big deal, yeah. Right? and that album came out. And that's what Stevie heard. It, was, it got a huge review in Rolling Stone, which was very, very positive. And uh, Stevie really wanted what we had, and that turned into uh, that Memorial Day weekend. And he showed up at and he, your studio. Yeah, and he showed up at the studio with, with his, our with album your under, record. His, under yeah. his arm. Yeah. Um, and then it was five years of Dreamland. I were you no completely idea. aware of who Stevie Wonder was? I don't know he, where he, he was in his career well, at that Well, he point. was, you know, he had just turned 21, and he uh, was out of his contract at Motown, which was sort of not really what Steve wanted to have. Uh, it was a very interesting time politically in this country. And, uh, this would the, be like 70? Yeah, 70s. Yeah. Late 60s, early 70s. And uh, he and Marvin Gaye really were the only two major rhythm and blues artists who were doing things that were political. Motown had the formula, you know, four guys with 
chartreuse suits with the fancy ties and they'd do synchronized dancing or Diana Ross. It was very formulaic. To, it was tailored specifically black music for white audiences, basically. It was mm-hmm. always very non undangerous, right? Yeah. And him and, Mar- and Stevie and Marvin Gaye were the first two to really write truly about the black experience. And Stevie came in. He's, he came on that Memorial Day weekend. He said, I want to see the synthesizer. And we took him downstairs and we showed him and he put his hands all over it and we sort of explained what it was. He says, can we record? We said, sure. Like right that moment? Right at that moment. Did he come to you with songs or did you there, just kind of putz around? No, there was no he, – he is the writer of the material. I think he had a lot of songs in his head primarily because he couldn't write anything down being unsighted. So he – Stopped working with Motown. His contract is up. He had just turned 21. And he was his own boss. And he got some real dollars at the end of the contract. And uh, he wanted to spend it doing something. So the three of us ended up working together. And it just fell together totally naturally. Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. We were right at it. And he said, well, we, what about this sound, Steve? What about that sound? Well, I got the song. He played the song on the piano. And sing. Sometimes the song wasn't complete. Sometimes it was, and we would go to town on it and figure out what sounds Stevie was hearing in his head. And that's how we got the t- he got the title "Music of My Mind," the first album we did. It was all the songs that were banging around in Stevie's head, and uh, we just started recording, and we never stopped. We didn't record it for albums. We didn't say, oh, now we're going to do an album. You recorded like a bunch of songs. We recorded hundreds of songs. Hundreds of songs. Right. We created a library, an archive. And then when the album came around, the album time came around, then we would uh, pick the songs from the – and he always picked too many, of course. He always wanted to do double albums. He's extremely prolific and an incredible musician, obviously. Uh, I have deep respect for him. I think he's done a lot also for for human rights and, you know, he was really behind getting Martin Luther King holiday birthday as an ho- official American holiday. It was really Stevie's doing. Really? So he had a major – the thing that attracted me to Stevie more than anything else was not only the songwriting and stuff but also uh, the – his ability to really understand the social condition of what was going on. And to be able to sing about it and stuff. And uh, I think that it was a very powerful thing. And we created music out of the thin air, you know. Those, all those songs that you recorded that you were choosing to put on the albums or he was choosing, um, you know, did all those end up getting released? Do they exist somewhere today? They exist, they they exist somewhere in Stevie's vast archive of sound. <laughs> and uh, That'd be a great box set. <laughs> yeah, it'd be incredible. But Steve, I mean, you, we had to do it right at the minute because if we didn't, if we got a sound we liked, right? Yeah. We had to get it right away because it would be gone in fifteen minutes. Wow. You know, it was very. The instrument was not. A, it was uh, slippery. It was it slippery. Was, yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's a good thought. Um, one song in particular, I think, is sort of a really a game changer for me. Was uh, a song called "Living for the City." which really sort of underlined the the black um, social condition at that time. All the young uh, black 
uh, men were migrating from the south to either New York or to Detroit to work in the automobile factories to find work because there was no work in the south. And although it was officially desegregated, it was still segregated. I mean, even here in Florida, you can get that feeling of, uh, you know, it's us and them, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, living for the city really told a social told a social story that was important, and it also in recording it um, uh, there is a section in which she talks New York just like I pictured it inside the songs like a little mini opera or a mini little radio drama, and being able to sort of start injecting that kind of rap it really was rap in its way. Um, in a song and to be able to do a song that wasn't exactly three minutes or three minutes and 20 seconds long. It went as long as the song needed to be there, you know. This song, when I pulled up, because uh, that's your second song, I, there's two versions that I found. There's a seven-minute and 22-second one, and then there's a 339 one. Yeah, that was the cut-down That one. was like the radio edit or whatever yeah, they would call yeah. it. Um, That's a very interesting aside, which I should share with you. Sure. Uh, why do you think music on the radio is three minutes and 20 seconds long or three minutes and five seconds? Why they are always around three or four minutes long? Well, these days I'd say it's because people have a short attention span, but the deeper into history, maybe there's a different reason? The deeper into history meeting is it's all the sound you could get on one side of a 78. Oh, there you go. And built around that. What really is happening is technology is driving the art, huh. okay? The stuff we did couldn't exist unless we had the technology because it had nothing to do with, you know, making a guitar or acoustic instrument. There were no acoustics. There's no architecture to play that kind of music. It's, it exists primarily in space, and it is what, the, what you dream of, but there's no real tactile yeah. instrument. And uh, Living for the City utilizes uh, – it's really a fusion of live and electronica, but starting out with electronic sound. We used the Fender Rhodes for the polyphonic chord structures, which we manfully processed through the synthesizer, through the filter banks and stuff, and the electronic part of the song, all, uh, all uh, uh, electronica, all oscillators and filters and things. And uh, we were constantly moving those dials very carefully through the songs. And it was played pretty much in real time. You know, after, after we laid down the basics, we would lay two or three. Steve got it, and we'd lay down one or two voices at a time. But that song is very, very socially significant. It's not only interesting from a musical place, but it's also interesting uh, from its social justice and uh, its political implications. Steve, always songs were always very political. I mean, Mr. Know-It-All, Richard Nixon. Hmm. Okay. It was, uh, hmm. uh, a lot of those songs were uh, – there were some love songs and some ballads and stuff. But Steve's really social perception is what really separated him from everybody else. Him and Marvin Gaye was another one who sort of wrote like that. Those are the first two really black artists who were writing stuff that was about their social condition and stood up for stood up for his his people and i was very happy to be a part of that hmm. i grew up in a um, that school i went to at stockbridge um was based on human rights and uh acceptance you know it was uh 
not uh, it was not segregated. We called teachers by their first names. We had class meetings. We flew the United Nations flag. This is 1957. Yeah. So I learned about the social condition and uh, uh, our uh, history of uh, slavery and all that other kind of stuff in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s. It's Martin Luther King and Abernathy and the you know, the little girls going to school being escorted by armed marshals going walking up the stairs. So by the time Stevie got to me, because Stevie's 10 years younger than I am, yeah, and we were going through another cycle of that social revolution at that point. And uh, that's what really sort of brought it home to me really deeply was that ability to have sensitivity to the social causes was a big part of it. Well, let's listen to this song, thinking about you back then. Sounds like you and him both sort of wound up in the same place at the same time, and, and Malcolm. Yeah, we were all, I mean, Malcolm had left London before he came to New York and went to South Africa, and he couldn't play, and he had to leave because they were, he jazz is black musicians. that They invented the format, right? And they tried in South Africa at that time. It was apartheid. So he was unhappy there, so he came to the West Coast and uh, then to New York for a minute and that's where where we met. And once Steve got rolling, we nothing else mattered. Really, it was like a fever dream. Wow. I love how you call him Steve. We all know him by Stevie, but you call him Steve. Um, all right, this is um, Robert, Mar- Robert Margolet's second song this week on Three Song Stories. It's Stevie Wonder's Living for the City from his 1973 Grammy Award-winning album Inner Visions. This is Three Song Stories. Wow. Steve played every instrument I on that I was going to ask, yeah. yeah. Steve played every instrument. The interesting thing, too, is uh, about, in general, about the, uh, well, first of all, the song... The guy, New York, just like I pictured it, uh-huh. that's Milton, Stevie's older brother. Ten years, the lawyer part, that's Johanan Vigoda, Stevie's lawyer, played that part. Uh, all the sound effects were recorded out in front of media sound at 4 o'clock in the morning in the rain. I'm standing there with my damn little Nagra recording an oil truck, uh, delivering fuel oil to the to the studio, and I had him drive up and down 57th Street and recorded the sound of the truck to, uh, we made that that little sound vignette. Yeah. But it's like a radio drama. Yeah. It, it, it transcends the idea first of a three and a half minute song, song seven and a half minutes long. And yet it's like a little opera in a way, and it sets up that scene. And remember, being Steve being unsighted, it was very important to him to be able to illustrate something. It reminded me of the olden days, like uh, the Lone Ranger or Sky King, or uh, you know, when we was little, when I was a little kid listening to the radio, those fifteen minute or half hour uh, soaps on uh, on the old they used to do one sixteen and two thirds records, uh, yeah, yeah, talking book records, so that you could get the time in for the thing because they were running at seventy eight. But that whole thing is a construct. And the interesting thing also is about basically how we recorded the drums, for example. Uh, if you think about it, the drums are plural. There are many drums. You know, it's the, if, and if you listen to somebody playing a 
the set of trap dramas and you walk into the studio, you're listening to it in mono because by the time all, he play all the instruments, all those various drums, they all sort of blend together and become basically a mono source. The only person who really hears the drums as close up is the drummer. Yeah. So for me, it was very important. We decided to record all of our percussion, and I still do it to this day, recorded from the POV of the drummer. Wow. So you listen to that record, you'll see the hi-hat comes up on the left. And that was, so you've got kind of like the tapers do with the multi-mics that yes, are like a yeah. stereo? Yeah, we did multi-mic. Every drum had a microphone, but we were able to construct uh-huh. exactly how Stevie was he- uh-huh. hearing it. Hi-hat on the left, ride on the right, and so forth. Huh. Uh, it was also important because being unsighted, having to be able to listen in headphones on the drums, uh, I wanted the dr- the image, the stereo image and the headphones to relate to the, exactly to how it was. Understood, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the sound field was the same. So it gave them a better chance of being accurate in terms of the playing. We did a lot of stuff like that all the time. Keyboard instruments, especially too, like acoustic pianos, you hear the low end on the left and the high end on the right. This keyboard will, if you did like a big... Were you already doing that or was that something that we, came out of trying to, you know, accommodate it was, Stevie? It, it was both. Okay. We were always experimenting with the audio. And the interesting thing also is the uh, ability of meld real, real-time sounds, you know, acoustic sounds with electronica so that there was always a mixture of it. And you never really knew where one left off and the other began. Huh. But uh, that song, I remember it was a rainy night when we recorded it. And uh, the other thing about it is that uh, we worked really hard with Steve to get the vocals very gruff sounding. He always used to like to have tea and honey in the studio. And Malcolm ran in and took a stole his teacup and we got him really pissed off. And I don't think he ever got over it. But we really got him to have a lot of attitude for that last version. What are you doing that gruff? Coming back after the little oh, vignette, yeah, that's definitely vignette. gruffer there. Yeah, we, we did it again and again and stopped the tape in the middle. Steve, you can do better, you know. And we were constantly at it. But it was just a, when we first started working with Steve, it was just me, Stevie, and Malcolm. There was no hangers on. There were no uh, mugwums and potentates from the record company. There's no people hovering around. It was all very tight and a very beautiful kind of family affair. The records were all really intensely personal, and uh, Steve is a master of that. There's no two ways about it. I'm, Malcolm and I sort of enabled him by being having the ability to create the electronic space for him to perform. But his songs weren't songs until they fell out of the loudspeaker. It wasn't a band going out on the road and rehearsing and performing tunes for six months and coming in the studio, and here is the band in front of you inside the proscenium arch. It's Our stuff is totally subjective. It's uh, you occupy the same space as the music. You know, that's a different... It's a different approach. Now we're doing it with Dolby Atmos, which is not going to be successful, in my opinion, in the long run, because it's not being used correctly. It's too complicated for young people to start writing music with spatial relationships in mind. Unless they have a certain kind of mind, maybe. You know? Yeah, but the, it's, uh, it's, it's really – Dolby Atmos really DNA is uh, motion pictures, yeah, yeah. not audio. 
Right. Let me ask you this, and I, I hope this question makes sense, but these days, you know, you can have a, an electronic music device, a synthesizer or whatever, and you can send it out as a line signal into your recording device. Um, back then, were you playing music through speakers with your Tonto that you then had to record with a microphone, or could you feed it straight into you the recording? It, you feed it straight into the recording. Okay. It's, you could monitor it, obviously, monitoring in the yeah, recording Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wasn't sure if you were recording the monitors or if you were recording no, the, the line. The, the, well, not live. The synthesizer was always recorded DI, basically, gotcha. direct. Okay. It, it was the musical instrument was the studio. Yeah, yeah. Became a performing instrument, the control room. Uh, like when I was working with Devo, for example, uh, I used the same principles. I, and I, I disrupted them mightily because uh, uh, I brought all the players into the control room instead of quad monitoring in the control room. I thought we were going to do – We originally we were playing around with a funny system called Sansui QS. It was a system that uh, was devised to put quad recordings in vinyl. Hmm. And it was a horrible failure. Uh, no one would buy the special cartridge. The records were very difficult to cut and you uh, uh, would pop the, the cassette, the cartridge out of the grooves from the way the audio, the geometry of the huh. grooves looked, so, but the one thing that came out of it in uh, in the most beautiful way was the fact that we were able to record uh, 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 music in quad and using it in the studio as a as a tool for composition and for performance. I would set up a quad mix in the control room at Stevie at then and then later Devo would be able to come into the control room and perform. There was only, like with uh, Devo, there was only Alan Myers in the studio with the drums in the correct position in his head, right? All the other players were in the control room. There were no he earphones. The system was playing. You were listening to it in quad. Yeah. And it gave them the opportunity to occupy the same space as the music. And it materially affected the way they played and performed. And to this day... That works, and we started doing that originally with Stevie, and it migrated into my whole career. I've been very much a fan. My first quad mix was Superstition, and I just recently remixed it in Dolby Atmos for the for a uh, convention here and for Dolby. I did it in, uh, in Dolby Atmos, which is very interesting. Uh, Object-oriented audio. I would audio. love to hear yeah. that. Um, before we move on to the Devo stuff, because uh, we're we're heading there in a little bit. Um, you know, I was a I was a photographer that was there during the bridge between film and digital, and there was a lot of pushback as digital came along. In the early days of synthesizers, what was the response? There had to be some people who were like, "You well, guys are cheating," or something yeah, along yeah, those lines. Yeah, it's going to take all our work. It's like what's going on now with with AI. Yeah, yeah. You know, and ChatGPT and all that stuff. And we're transitioning once again in music. In music, it started with the synthesizer, but there were earlier instruments, but like, for example, the theremin. Which, the, which Robert Moog was making theremins before he made his first Moog, right? That's, that's absolutely correct. And as a matter of fact, one of the first albums I ever made was with a band called Lothar and the Hand People. Lothar and, and the, the Hand People. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that was uh, – Lothar was a theremin. 
And the band was signed to Capitol Records. John Hammond was the A&R guy, absolutely fantastic, real A&R person, not a bean counter, but the real McCoy. And uh, when I heard the synthesizer, I, I made arrangements to buy one, and Bob Moog came to the studio with it and was always around to fiddle with the controls and stuff because the keyboards would drift and there were all these different problems. But the synthesizer had its early start there, and there were a lot of people who say, oh, it's going to take – it's a, imitating real instruments. It's going to take everybody's jobs. And there was a lot of fear and superstition around, oh, it's not a real instrument. And the reality is connected – if you write on it, it's connected – it's an instrument that's connected directly to your brain. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be played with keyboards. There are other interfaces. Anything you can change a voltage with, you can make music with. And Lothar actually was the first project that I worked on where we started. We had the first synthesizer, Moog 3, in my little studio on 47th Street. And uh, I was going to make music for Chow Manhattan for my movie and so forth. And Lothar became a part of that thing. The two of the guys in the band became my engineers and partner partners in making music in the studio, electronic music in the studio. So uh, we, uh, you know, it uh, sort of at that point is where I started to experiment with fusing live instruments with electronica mm -hmm. to mix them together that they are all equal, really. They're just ways of – another way of a human being able to express himself in some sort of artistic and emotional manner. How did you come across Devo? You had been working with Stevie for those albums, so you certainly had made a name for yourself in the world of electronic creation of music. Um, did they come find you like he did? Did you bump into them at a place or no, what happened? No, I met through the most strange, strangely droll experience. I'd seen them perform once or twice at the Starwood, and it didn't cross my mind. I thought they were really interesting, but it didn't cross my mind until my accountant, God bless him, a guy named Neil Levin, who's probably the most buttoned-down person I've ever met in my life, uh, he had an accounting firm in Beverly Hills, and he was the only male employee. He had 10 women working for him. He was a very strange guy, and he had a foot massager under his desk. But uh, uh, Elliot Roberts, I think, one of uh, – was uh, uh, managing was a friend of a friend of Neil's, a client of Neil's, and uh, he had uh, one of his clients was Devo, and they were really very concerned because his first two albums didn't really do what they were supposed to do because they were uh, they really didn't understand the band at all, but somehow uh, uh, he gave me a call and said, "Would you be interested in working with them?" So. Uh, I said, sure. I was working at the record plant at the time. Um, I had become their uh, sound maitre d', so to speak. I had a lot of engineering experience, obviously, by this time. And I was really sort of the inside guy keeping the studios, all the studios. There were four studio, two, three studios in Sausalito, one, two, and four studios in L.A. And they all had to be kept running, all the major people coming in to work at the record plant. And they all needed different things and different equipment and stuff. And after Stevie, I was always looking for my next hill. And uh, that's what happened. They came to the studio. Neil set up a meeting. They came to the studio. I'll never forget that. Uh, they, this little, we were sitting in the, the uh, reception room, had sliding glass doors 
on it. You, it looked out onto the parking lot. And we were sitting there waiting for them. And this little black uh, Volkswagen with tinted windows drives into the stu- into the parking lot. And the Devos get out of the car and they were dre- – you know, the record plant, major players, right? You're, you're taught to be totally nonchalant when people come – to the studio so that you're not wowed and being groupies when somebody like John Lennon walks into right. do a session, right? You always have to be like really sort of professional, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were sitting there. Me and my assistant at that time, Howard Siegel, and I were sitting in the control room. The car comes in. The doors open. And these four guys get out. And they're all – they have black rubber hip boots on up <laughs> to their up their calves. They're all wearing uh, – um, uh, coveralls that matched, and they were wearing hard hats with a container. I was going to ask if they wore their hard hats to the studio, but I yeah, thought that was a silly question. Yeah, but apparently but the hard hat they had did. A, uh, a hard hat had a uh, canister t- uh, zip tied to it, and a hose came out and was going up their noses. Oh boy! And I will tell you, they were all covered in grease. And I looked, and I said, "What the hell? <laughs> what?" But you know, and the people in the in this thing completely lost their composure, you know. And uh, it was Devo out hip to the record plan. Uh, well, <laughs> it was really because they were doing a uh, we were acting in a film that were that was at Raleigh Studios. Gotcha. I don't remember the they name. They were coming of, from the set. Yeah, and they were coming from the set, and they didn't want to. It was a really innocent thing. But it blew the entire studio away. I mean, they were completely crazy. And it was this, this film's uh, um, um, uh, plot line was about how they they were working in the atomic energy workers and they themselves were radioactive. And they were uh, – it was uh, really about the environment in uh, – and about radioactivity. It was during the time they had the Three Mile Island. Yeah, yeah. It was around that time, right? Uh-huh. So they came as the radioactive workers in that film. And so they came to the studio like that. And it was just – we took them around the place and we got things going. And then Howard and I went to a couple of uh, rehearsals and we really – really understood, yes, that they are talking about devolution, yet like Stevie, yet another political, politically driven band. And they had a lot to say. And if you look at today, you'll see that uh, um, you'll see that they weren't wrong, that our country and the world is really unwinding and we're doing it to ourselves in the environment. Both Stevie Wonder and Devo had a lot in common. And uh, incidentally, they were big fans of uh, they were big fans of Stevie and R&B. Hmm. So with me, my R&B background with Steve uh, and my electronic electronica uh, credentials played a big part in really getting them to perform to the limits of their potential. And we worked there and we tracked that record in 12 days at the record plant and did some overdubbing elsewhere, but basically mixed it at the record plant as well. And I had all the players in the control room and they were all monitoring and quadded quite a high level. So they were occupying the same, we were occupying the same space as the music. And that's what set it differently. And that's exactly the way I used to work with Steve. Malcolm and I would have him in the control room with a stack of keyboards 
and all the clavinets and all the other instruments and everything all set up. All they had to do was come in and start playing. There was no hovering, going back and forth into the studio and the control room. Oh, let's listen to this one. Let's listen to that one. Then trot back out in the studio and get it, put the headphones on again, do all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. But they were able to play together as an ensemble, much like Steve did. There was a lot of similarity. They were very hip on Steve as well. So uh, they, they, they got it. And what they had to say also fit my political beliefs once again and uh, about the world evolving. I thought the message was important, and I did the record and produced the record with the view of them saying something extremely powerful that people needed to hear then and need to hear now. Uh, taking that recording for the uh, Synthplex concert and remixing uh, Whip It and Dolby Atmos really sort of was I was able to really do it because I recorded when I was tracking the record I was tracking it listening in the monitors in quad right so they could hear how the instruments talk to one another right yeah and same thing is true with Devo there's a lot of the sameness they were big bottom end fans so I I really worked hard to create a really solid bottom end for the record, which was not – most rock records were really sort of dependent at the time on the backbeat on two and four. And, uh, you know, when uh, when you, you started uh, migrating towards the more modern music, the backbeat went to the floor and it became – it became uh, disco, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really really <laughs> marching music, you know. That's really what it was. But I sort of had that consciousness of uh, bottom end from doing all the R&B records. So when I got to Devo, um, I, I really sort of brought that energy, that direction to the recordings. And Mark and uh, uh, they, they really understood. Uh, we really understood one another. You know, it's... Uh, it's it's an it's an important record in that sense, and I think we're seeing it now even today. But doing that record in quad, mixing, recording it in quad early on, uh, really enabled us to uh, create uh, the same kind of situation uh, in Dolby Atmos because hmm. I was it was already it was thought out in a room. Where it was in quad, I understood what the placement would be in a question yeah, yeah. of isolation, for example. The other thing is you'll notice the records are very dry. There's not a lot of reverb and echo because for yeah, me, yeah. reverb and echo connotate distance and space. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to have is something confessional and close. That's exactly what we did with Stevie. He was two inches from an RE20, right? He could so he could touch the microphone. Wouldn't do, make a noise like he's mm -hmm. scratching mic and you see if it's live. You know, Steve couldn't put his hands on the mic because it would make noise. But with an RE twenty, mm -hmm. he could get very close and get this kind of very nice, present, close, confessional sound. And that's exactly what we did with Devo as well. Well, let's listen to this song. They sort of relate to each other. It's so funny because I, I guarantee if you asked 100 people if there was any overlap between Stevie Wonder and Devo, they'd probably think no, but yeah. there, there you have it. So uh, the reason I'm here is because of Devo. Uh, I'm here because I'm going to be uh, giving a talk, I think it's tomorrow, at the Rauschenberg Gallery. Mm -hmm. 
on Devo and what we did and how we put things together with the band. And uh, I'm friends with them to this day. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to uh, remix another song with them, but they couldn't find the master tape. Oh, no. And the intensely political song, it was called Freedom of Choice. Because I think with the issue with abortion and anti-abortion people and people should have freedom of choice. It's not something the government should get inside your bedroom and tell you how to deal with your own body. And there's a, you know, this Planned Parenthood and all these people are trying to give people their freedom of choice. And I wanted to remix that song and uh, we actually talked a little bit about possibly re-recording it because we can't find the master. Unfortunately, I was lucky to find the master of Whippet, but uh, I think freedom of choice right now, politically, from a political place, place is a very positive message about exercising your rights. And that's those kind of songs are the ones that really, the political ones are the ones that really drew me close to my artists. Hmm. Well, let's listen to Whippet. Think about it yeah, through that lens. Um, I have it's I don't know if this matters to you or not, but you know, I have a sort of a modern, you know, well produced, you know, remaster of Whip It, but I also have somebody recorded uh it off of a forty five. So it's kinda like lo fi. You wanna listen to that or you wanna listen to the nice one? I'd like to listen to the nice one. Okay, I thought. I just thought it was interesting that, yeah, that well, Whip It was released as a forty five. I don't know if yeah, most people the, would think it that. was the only uh that was their hit. It became their hit record. But that band, they have a tremendous amount of energy even these days. They're out on their last tour. But I'm going to be at the Rauschenberg Gallery with bells on and we'll talk about Devo and how we made all those records and put them together and uh, answer people's questions and have some fun in the meantime. Which is why we're so lucky to have you here today. I'm delighted to be here, too. Well, this is Whip It by Devo from their 1980 album Freedom of Choice. This is Three Song Stories. It's biography through music. It's so interesting for me to listen back to that song now hearing the stories that you've told and the way they're making it because I never stop to think what's making those sounds. But it's it's synthesizers and it's electronic analog music and it's just really cool. Yeah, some, in, some interesting things about the the tracking of the drums. Um, we came across a new technology and a new kind of microphone called a PZM microphone. Okay. And a PZM microphone takes uh, sound from a surface. So the like the microphones we're talking now are t- taking sounds from behind the microphone as well. You're having the room ambience. But with a PZM microphone on a sheet of wood, the boundary is where the sound is picked up from. Understood. Not from the room. And I used two of those microphones to record the room sounds for the drums. And that's why they sound so crispy. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the, they're very dry. And they're in stereo. They, you feel the, the motion of everything because it's close to you. So that was really sort of very interesting technique. We had the conventional mics, the 421s on the TomToms and some 414 EBs over in the overheads and so forth. Uh, RE20 on the kick drum, as I remember. But it was very dry. And uh, they were all had eye contact with uh, Alan, who was an incredible player, Alan Myers. I think he's gone now, but uh, he uh, he was beyond steady. 
I mean, you could record with him and not have the song speed up or slow down and not do it with a click track, just to be able to sit down and play with an iron sense of timing. He was really good, and his drum kit sounded fantastic. And when I start recording bands, that's the first thing I listen for is to see what the rhythm section is doing. And the bass line, of course, is synthesizer, Moog synthesizer. And the other thing I did is uh, for the guitar sounds, I used uh, a couple of different amplifiers, but they were all melted together and they were all in their own isolated, excuse me, they were all in their isolated spaces. So after we tracked things, I would have one sound of the one amplifier like a tweed and then a, a, a Marshall amp uh, uh, as well playing together. But then we in the studio, in the control room, I could blend the two together to really sort of huh. get the sounds to fit correctly. Huh. And uh, the guys were really into doing stuff like that. But the record really sort of reflected a real combination of what I picked up with Stevie all the way through all the other records I made in between. I mean, I may have made a lot of records. So, How many records have you been a part of, would you guess, or do you know? I would know? say easily 100. Yeah? I've been making records for 60 years. I'm 83 years old. So I've sort of been around for this huge evolving transition in what, how we listen and what we listen to and how it's made and constructed. And I will say this, that... Uh, I've just finished writing a book called, incidentally, called Standing on the Edge. It's a, all of these stories about Devo, and I'm going to read some stuff from the book tomorrow night uh, as part of my talk mm -hmm. on Devo. And uh, they're a wonderful bunch of guys. They're really true artists in every way. And again, that Devo came about because of the Kent State shootings. Jerry and and Mark were there when the whole bunch of kids got mowed down by the they National Guard. They were at Guard. Kent State? Yeah, they were Kent State. I didn't know that. Yeah, and that is what sort of was the uh, final push over the edge for them that they felt compelled to say something about devolution and about what was going on. And this was, again, a civil rights issue, just like with Stevie Mars, Steve Lamar's Hellroy Judkins Wonder. was. Those were all his last names. I even remember him to this day. But the, the, he too was talking about the social conditions just like Devo. They, but they were diametrically opposite in a lot of ways and in certain ways they were the same. Devo is sort of a monster's head on an R&B body. Hmm. You know, it's a combination. It has a rhythm and blues bottom end, highly energized bottom end. But it's guitars. You got to understand another thing about the studio and the control room. If you sort of monitored sound, the level of sound, the sound pressure, the SPL, in a recording studio in the '60s, right, six late '60s, early '70s, and you measured, you know, it would be loud if it was like 50 or 60 dB. If you measured the energy in the room, right. Mm -hmm. But when rock and roll started happening, the music got louder and louder. And the studio control rooms, the music got louder and louder as well. It was not untoward to hear a music at 110 or 120 dB SPL in the control room. Out of 18-inch woofers, the rooms were constructed specifically to be able to handle that kind of audio, that kind of level of audio with trapping and acoustics. And the studios themselves evolved. And these records, both Stevie and Devo's records, both um, – uh, and the Isley Brothers, another band we work with, Malcolm and I worked on, Fight to Power and 3 Plus 3, 
and all that stuff. The rooms themselves were evolved and been designed by somebody by the name of Tom Hidley, who was a, a genius. And he developed these high-energy monitors because the band players, when they came into the control room, they expected to be able to hear it as loud as they heard it on stage. So the rooms got louder. People got more deaf, <laughs> and including me a little bit. And uh, things evolved and changed. But the rooms themselves were musical instruments, musical instruments that we inhabit. We live inside the instrument, just like Tonto, living inside the instrument. And uh, uh, I just want to, you know, say I'm looking forward to tomorrow night, uh, Devo 5.0. The 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 beginning of was the beginning was the end, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I I think that we're going to have a pretty interesting time, and um, I'm just glad that Jade has been very uh, forthcoming and helping me get things together for this. And I'm very honored to be visiting you guys. How often, you know, you've made so many songs. I guess my question is, is when was the last time you sat down and really listened to, you know, that Stevie Wonder song, the seven and a half minute version in good headphones intently? A lot or a long time ago? No, a lot. I, uh, the certain songs. Especially as you're starting to do some of these Dolby mixes and stuff like that. Yeah, but I'm, uh, I'm just glad I was there. And I know what. I, I'm hearing, you know, I, I trust my ears, but I also know that through music we can change the world and we need to work toward doing songs like Freedom of Choice and Whip It. You can whip it into shape. It's, it's sort of that Horatio Alger American exceptionalism, you know. You can whip it. You can just do it. You make a great life for yourself. Just, you know, just stand up and do your thing and be inventive and brave and all that stuff. It's kind of Horatio Alger motion on one hand and on the other hand. Is that song really about S&M sex? Whip it, you know. Is it whip it good? <laughs> you know. <laughs> or is it whip it good about the, the higher order or higher meanings? That kind of dualistic thing in that song is what really, I think, sets it off. And I, I would like to see them do some more music. Hmm. I really would. We're going to head in for a landing here, and I'm going to forego our normal speed round because you don't need to answer questions like, do you do karaoke? No. <laughs> but I do want to ask you the last question in the speed round is, um, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today if you could – 14 could see you now and what you've done? I actually had no idea what I wanted to be or who I was. I think uh, – my first kind of, you know, you, you grow up, you, you start in a crib, your room, and your little bedroom is your whole world. And then as you get older, you're suddenly in the hall, then you're in the living room, then you're in school, and then you're yeah. in college, and you're traveling the world, and your world gets bigger and bigger. And then as you grow older, your world starts getting smaller and smaller again. So uh, I, I just think we're at a very interesting place in music. Uh, there'll always be music. It's an interesting phenomenon. It only happens in the air. If you turn it off, it goes away. It stops existing. So it's there and then it's gone. And I think we're beginning to see the real sort of the meshing of the new technologies uh, by virtue of uh, headphones, which is the interesting way of delivering immersive audio. Uh, because, you know, we tried it many, many times to do immersive audio. We always failed because 
the who wants what kid wants to listen to their parents' home theater to surround music? The only way to really deliver it is on headphones, and now everybody's on headphones. Yeah, you know, so it's uh, you know the delivery medium changes, but the you know the technology drives the art. It really does, and uh, I talk about it a lot in my book. The book is called uh, "Standing on the Edge," and I think that uh, uh, that we're that this book on Devo is going to happen too here. Uh, Jay Dellinger's book. Then uh, uh, I just got it. I'm going to read it. Start reading it tonight. It's called uh, Devo 5.0. The beginning was the end, hmm. and I'm looking forward to the read because Jade is. Anyone knows about Devo? It's Jade, and uh, I'm having a wonderful time down here. We're going to do a show tomorrow night. And I think people should go and see what the, see the exhibit. I think pretty interesting. But uh, we changed the world a little bit. And uh, I thank Jade for uh, Jade Dellinger for inviting me down for it. I'm very. I think I'm very blessed. Well, we're lucky to have you. It is time for you to recommend three people that you'll give this show to once it comes out and say, hey, maybe you might want to be on this show. Anybody in mind? Yeah, Stevie. Yeah, you think you can pull that off? Yeah, I talk to him every now and again. You think he'd do it? Yeah. Uh, Tell him we're big-hearted people who pay attention. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you've had your world changed a little bit. That's a good thing. Uh, probably uh, my good friend and editor and Dan Cavanaugh, who sort of looks after my career. I share a lot with him as a personal level. And just in general with my, my friends, basically. Uh, I like listening in the living room. I love listening on headphones uh, because I can actually – it's really interesting. Do you, how do you know where a sound is coming from? How does your brain tell you where a sound That's is coming from? That's a good question, from? especially if it's coming in headphones that are right next to your ears. Right. How does your brain know where a sound is coming from? I don't know. Well, with the Dolby Atmos and other – there are other very useful formats like that. The sound unfolds inside your head. There is no more room. This is the room. Yeah. And we're writing for that now, and artists can understand it and deal with it. And that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. But we're living in a new, new space, and it's we pretty are. interesting. Who's your third recommendation? i got to press you on that. Uh, let me see. Who would be the third one? Uh, probably uh, my, one of my artists I'm working with now, Julian Shaw Taylor. Okay, uh, and he's uh, he looks and sounds like David Bowie. Huh. He's an incredibly he's an Englishman. He's an incredible player and musician, and he has a band called The Singularity, which I think is very fitting because I think that's what we're looking at with AI. Yeah, is the singularity. I think a lot of people fear that. I don't fear it. I I, I embrace change. I think that's the best thing. That Life happened. is change. Yeah. How are you going to fear it? I, I guess spare change at this point. <laughs> oh, well, Robert, thank you so much for very coming welcome. in and talking with us and sharing these stories. It's been a real treat. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, just keep doing it. Be musical. Don't worry about your age or anything. Just put one foot in front of the other. If you get too far, thinking too far in advance, what happens is you develop a lot of anxiety. So uh, don't think too far in advance and know that today is okay. You put your feet on the floor this morning. You looked at yourself in the mirror. 
You took a shower. You had breakfast. You lived your life one day at a time, and it's a good life, you know, and it's a blessing that we can be here doing things like this. For this week's Parting Tune, we're jumping back one year to episode number 239 guest, Judd Cribbs. He's an assistant professor in the journalism program at FGCU. Judd said his family went to Ocean City, New Jersey every year when he was a kid. They rented a place on the beach, and that was such a special place to him that while he was in his 20s, he would take himself back to that same rental for a vacation every year by himself. He said he would just chill out reading books, playing video games at an arcade on the boardwalk. He'd just gotten his first job as a journalist and was driving there in his Honda Civic listening to the radio when Rod Stewart's Forever Young came on. And I was like somewhere on like the Garden State Parkway or something like that. And it was just a beautiful day out. The wind, I rolled the windows down and um, it was sunny and like um, Rod Stewart's Forever Young song came on. And I, I know he'd written it like for his kids, I believe, but it, that just the words were like, you know what, this is like kind of like a roadmap of how I should live my life, you know. And um, I've heard that song so many times, probably before and definitely since, but it's just that one, like when I hear it, I don't think of any other time or any other place in my life than that moment, you know. And so every time I hear it, I it just makes me, you know, it just makes me happy to think like that's how I'm going to try and live my life I'm going to try because I was young at the, <laughs> I was young at the time and that's like you know 30 some years ago we make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers Florida Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer Tara Callaghan is host and online content producer our production assistant is Jared the intern Gonzalez Christophus is our executive producer, and our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Keep listening.